0: Well, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a big fan of the, uh, the anti-hero. Now, the anti-hero, that's, that's a little bit different from last week. Okay, last week we talked about the loser, okay, or the underdog. The anti-hero is a little bit different. The American Heritage Dictionary defines the anti-hero as a main character in a dramatic or narrative work characterized by a lack of traditional heroic qualities, so, for example, when you are reading a book or watching TV, these are the, the characters that you feel guilty rooting for. Those are the antiheroes. They're the people that you, you hate to love and love to hate all sort of right at the same time. Uh, and it's all different kinds of, you know, popular antiheroes uh, in, in our culture. We've got a few of them up here. Um, you know, Iron Man, Severus Snape, um, Dirty Harry... Jack Sparrow, Michael Scott, uh, you know, Walter White, all these people who are sort of the, the main characters in whatever, whatever place they find themselves and maybe have a tiny bit of goodness on display and yet they just, you just know something's just not quite right with those people, right? They're the antiheroes. Um, and I think we're drawn to antiheroes, at least me personally, okay, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm drawn to stories of anti-heroes uh, because it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. I mean, just quite honestly, okay? I may not be the best dad in the world, but at least I don't cook crystal mess to pay the bills, okay? Uh, it could be worse. Uh, and also, I think, the second reason I think we're drawn to anti-heroes, again, at least me personally, is because we see a little bit of ourselves in them. Sometimes maybe a little bit too much of ourselves. Because every one of us, we all want to be the, the hero of our own story, don't we? Uh, We we want to get to the end of our lives and know that it mattered, uh, that our lives counted for something, that we made some sort of difference. And we think to ourselves, if these guys can be the hero, uh, even if they're the anti-hero, then then maybe maybe there's something left for me as well. Because I I see my faults and I know those struggles. And so we think, well, just maybe. And this morning we're going to look at one of the greatest anti-heroes in all of the Bible. I mean, this guy's a mess, quite honestly, and I'm just gonna warn you, this, this story is weird. It's dark, difficult, um, but we're gonna make the most of it. It's about Samson, and some of you, some of you are familiar with Samson. Others of you, maybe, maybe you're not really familiar necessarily with him. Uh, if you have heard of him, maybe you picture him as kind of this, this long-haired, you know, strong man, this sort of powerful leader in Israel's history. Maybe, maybe you think of him, I mean, it's almost as if he's a character out of the movie Tangled, right? He almost has this like magical hair sort of thing and, and has these sort of superpowers, it almost seems like. I mean, it's just kind of, a, kind of a weird story. I mean, he even has his own action figure. You can actually buy this online, okay? Uh, right here. That's, that's our guy right there. They forgot the beard, okay? That's part of the, that's really important that he has a beard. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, but I, what I love most about this action here is you'll, you'll see right down at the bottom, you can barely see it, it says family values. Which means that this action figure was apparently manufactured by a company that never read the story of Samson. Because there is nothing about this guy that screams out family values. We make him a hero, but he's the worst. I mean, he is the most egotistical, self-absorbed, womanizing, ineffective leader that you could possibly imagine, and yet, here he is. I mean, if anything, the story of Samson is a story of what not to do. It's a parallel of everything that Israel did wrong, and in many ways, we find parallels with our own lives as well. But he's as close to a hero as we get in the book of Judges. Samson is the anti-hero, and yet God uses him anyway. And as I looked at this bizarre story this, this past week, and you know, Patrick and I had conversations, and Chris and the other the other teachers at our other campuses trying to figure out, okay, we were gonna take, we're gonna have one message in this, this message, you know, this overview of the whole Bible in Judges. We're doing Samson, four chapters. What what, what's, what's the point? I mean, as you read this, it's just, it's just bizarre. Uh, but here's what I think the main lesson from his life is. The one thing, at the very least, for us, even in this bizarre story for us to walk away with, is that at the very least, God works in spite of us. God works in spite of us. Which, as a pastor, I can't tell you how much relief that gives me, because I know uh, my issues, i know my struggles, my inadequacies as a father certainly. But for all of us in every role in which we serve and live and lead and who we are as individuals longing to make a difference in our world, God works in spite of us. And if God can use Samson, he can he can use anyone. So if you have a bible, turn to judges 13. Um Judges chapter 13, if you, we'll have the, the scripture up there. But if you want to follow along in the story, there's a lot that we won't be reading. Uh, it's, it's Judges 13. Um, now, a lot has, has happened since, since last week. Uh, 300 years, in fact, have gone by. Uh, so if you were here last week, we talked about the, the Joshua leading the people into the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, we talked about Rahab and uh, the battle of Jericho was looming on the horizon, all of that. Well, that's, that's all now way in the past. Joshua is long dead. The people have entered into the land of Israel. It is theirs now, except it hasn't exactly been that great. In fact, the promised land has been a huge disappointment. Um, But that's because they have refused to obey God at every turn. They have continued to rebel against God who rescued them out of Egypt and brought them into this place. They've continued to rebel and live faithlessly before him. And so God has allowed his enemies, their enemies, to continue to oppress them. Particularly the Philistines in this story um, and even throughout the book of Judges. And so it, it's, a, it's a dark period, and, and Israel, so at this point, this quasi-nation all throughout the book of Judges, so if you're reading it this week, uh, is led intermittently by these judges. Now, when we hear the word judge, you know, we picture sort of these, you know, clean-cut civic leaders uh, of a well-established democracy. I mean, that's kind of the image that we have. Um, that's not the book of Judges. In fact, one scholar says that a much better picture or even word to describe judges is, is the idea of warlords. These are a collection of warlords that God uses to bring deliverance to his people. Some of them kind of okay, most of them not. Um, and yet God uses them and these, these individuals, these leaders, they use power essentially in order to just gain a tiny little bit of survival in this long ongoing battle against the Philistines. So the book of Judges is an ugly time. In fact, the, the theme of Judges appears a couple times. Uh, it says in, the, in there, in 21, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did whatever they thought was best. People who had received the law, who had the promises, who had seen the miracles, and all they did was whatever they wanted. And it was the worst and so now it's about 1100 BC when Samson enters the scene. And Israel is entering the low point of the low point. His story begins in 13, verse 1. It says And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But wait, there's hope. Because the, the rest of chapter 13, the entire chapter, is about the birth of Samson. And let me just give you a heads up. Anytime you read in your Bibles a lengthy story about somebody's birth, you got to pay attention. It, it means that at least the potential is there for God to do something absolutely spectacular. I mean, we only, we only have the, the birth narratives of, of people like Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses, the, the, some of these, these great people who have who've come before us in this story, and now we get Samson. I mean, she's excited. And the angel of the Lord actually shows up. I mean, that's another really good sign that something awesome is going to happen. Uh, and he shows up to this barren couple, which is another sign that God is up to something unique in this moment in history. And the angel of the Lord says, you're going to have a son. And he says about him, he says, And that son, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I mean, at this point, it's time to crack out the bottle of champagne, Right? To celebrate, who is this guy? Who is this baby that's coming? Well, that's not exactly what can happen because um, he is a Nazarite, it says. But this angel of the Lord goes on and describes what it's gonna look like for this boy, Samson, to come into the world, that he's gonna be a Nazarite all of his life, which to us means, right, practically nothing, probably less than nothing. Um, But this was something that was found in the Old Testament law. It was a vow that was temporary and voluntary in most cases, it was a vow to give up certain things for a, a period of time, um, you know, in some ways similar to how, how some Christians celebrate Lent, right? To give up maybe meat or chocolate or, or whatever, if that's, if that's part of your church. The Nazarite vow was similar to that. And there were three things in particular that a Nazarite was supposed to give up. Couldn't touch any dead bodies. Not sure why you'd want to, but have to give that up. Uh, no alcohol, uh, none at all. He can't even eat grapes just because of the association with wine. He had to give it up completely during that time period. Um, and third, no haircuts, no shaving. And guys, some of you are like, yeah, that sounds, well, but what about the alcohol, right? That's okay. Maybe it's not so, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but it was meant to be voluntary and temporary. And yet for Samson, the angel said this is going to be for his entire life. These are the things that must characterize him. These three. Not, not to, um, because Samson was special, not to give him superpowers or special powers, but simply as a demonstration that God had set this person apart for a unique task in history. It was a visible symbol. So it sounds good, right? And this guy could be the one. I mean, chapter 13, I mean, even ends with these words at the end of chapter 13. It says, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. As he grew up. If I hadn't already warned you. At this point. If you didn't know anything about this guy. We would expect. I mean practically like the Messiah coming right. This guy's got everything lined up for him. That a hero should have. Well don't. Don't hold your breath. Which I think really leads us to the first thing that we learn in the story. I mean God works in spite of us yes. And so that's kind of the overarching theme. but, But at the same time. Starting strong isn't the same thing as finishing well. That's pretty obvious in this story. It doesn't work that way for Samson. It doesn't work that way for Israel. It doesn't work that way for us. I mean, Like Samson, Israel, even with all the promises, all the miracle, all of the law, they started off so strong, but because of their disobedience and their lack of trust, they are now in the cesspool that was supposed to be the promised land. I think there are parallels for us as well. I mean, just because you seem to, to start off really strong in your Christian faith, it doesn't mean you're gonna finish well. Good beginnings don't guarantee good endings. I think it's easy sometimes for us to, to trust in some, something in our past, right? To, to trust a, a prayer that we prayed or to trust some spiritual experience that we've had or some, some high point. I'm not making light of those things. Those, are, those can be important things movements in our, in our faith journey. But we still have to wrestle with the question, what's, what is our faith like today? Not just what, hap- what happened in the past. Because I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, Samson, sh- certainly his parents had told him the story. And I can't help but wonder if he grew up thinking he could do no wrong because an angel announced his birth. Just grew up thinking that he was invincible. I'm, I'm somebody special. I've got it all together. We, we cannot trust our stories. We can't trust our backgrounds. We can't trust uh, our good works up to this point. Again, not that those things are unimportant, but they're not what we trust. We trust Jesus, and we keep trusting in Jesus, and that is the only way to persevere. I mean, even the tortoise, right, in that ancient parable will tell you, it doesn't matter how you start the race. It's how you finish that matters. So will you finish well? All right, so by the time Samson then reaches adulthood, or at least young adulthood, his life is already in trouble. So now we're in 14, beginning in verse 2. Samson demands of his parents, he says, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our peoples that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now remember the theme of Judges, right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author wants to make it very clear that Samson is included in that mess. Even Samson wants to do just simply what's right in his own eyes. And Israel, the Israelites, they're not allowed to, to intermarry between faiths. It wasn't that um, this, this woman, it wasn't that her ethnicity or her race was reprehensible. It was her strict adherence to these pagan gods. And, and as a Philistine at this moment, I mean, she is one of, they are one of Israel's deepest enemies. They are working to oppress and destroy Israel, to enslave them on every front. And now Samson wants to marry one of them. And yet God says, essentially, says, well, let's just let this play out. It's all part of his bizarre rescue plan in this story. So as the story continues, a couple of verses later, still in chapter 14. Um, F- uh, Samson is on his way to, to visit this, this Philistine hottie, his new girlfriend. And all of a sudden, a lion jumps out and tries to kill him. Verse six, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Crazy, right? I mean, this, is, this is like the crocodile hunter here. I mean, all of a sudden, this is unbelievable. and, and all, He just kills it. And now obviously he ends up touching a dead body here, right? Breaking his vow. It's hard to really blame him in this moment right right he's just he's trying to protect himself it's hard to get too frustrated by by what happens here but as the story continues uh, it gets a little bit deeper in sort of his carelessness with his vows in fact it becomes obvious that he could care less about his vows because another time it doesn't really tell us when but a, a few verses later but time has passed that dead lion is rotting away And Samson is on his journey back to to visit his his lady, um, this Philistine lady. uh, And he notices the dead carcass. And he notices that in the carcass is a hive of bees. And he's hungry, wants a snack. And so he reaches down inside the dead lion's carcass, scoops out some of the honey and begins to eat his snack. I'm not a Nazarite, but I even I think that's disgusting, right? I mean, it's just this gross and it's weird and I, what what on earth? But the reason it's so important and the reason I think that the author put this in the story about Samson is to show this guy could care less. These vows, yeah, okay. He's born born a Nazarite, had to from birth. That's what the angel said. But he could care less about his vows. It's not a big deal to him. And even as the story continues, what he's going to is kind of his, I don't know if it's his engagement party or wedding party, but it's some sort of, almost like a weird frat party with a bunch of his Philistine buddies, even though they're not really his buddies and we'll we'll see that in a moment as well. But he goes and the text says that he prepares a feast for them. There's a couple of different words for feast in the Old Testament. This one in particular really means drinking party. I mean, that, that's the idea behind this word. And so there, there is another one of Samson's vows that he could really care less about. I mean, drinking is permissible in scripture, uh, but not if you're a Nazarite. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't take his vows seriously. It, it's at the end, 1410, if you're following along, uh, it's at this seven-day frat party where Samson comes up with this bizarre riddle. And he makes a bet with everybody who's there about this riddle. And the seven days pass, and that's when the, the Philistines have that much time to, to figure out the, the riddle, and they cannot figure out what it is. And the stakes are pretty high here. And so they tell Samson's fiance that if she doesn't get the answer for them, she's gonna, they're going to kill her and her family. It's a pretty dark period of history, right? This is, this is a difficult time, to say the least. I mean, the stakes are high, but it's kind of ridiculous. Well, we'll see in the story that women have a way of getting whatever they want from Samson, uh, whatever information they deem necessary, and so she does. He tells her, she tells them, and Samson loses the bet. And he's mad. And so in response, he goes out to another Philistine village, kills 30 Philistines, takes from them what he now owed these other Philistines in return. He's, He's get that he kills them and takes it on this is the hero remember of this story here is in quotes there and in the meantime verse 20 I mean just when things couldn't get sort of worse uh, Samson's wife it says was given to his companion who had been his best man While While he's off fighting these Philistines gathering the bet she's given to somebody else it's a big mistake People need to learn to stop messing with this hot-tempered jock. Bad things happen. And so what does he do? I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, really. He catches 300 foxes, Samson does. Foxes or jackals, the word is a little ambiguous in the Hebrew there, so your translation might be different, but 300 animals. Um, Probably took him some time to do that, but he captures them, he ties them in pairs by their tails. Picturing that? Okay. And then he ties a burning torch to their tails as well and sets them f- loose in all the Philistine farms and orchards and olive groves. Burns everything. Kind of a weird prank, right? Um and again, remember, I mean, the Philistines, they really are the bad guy here, okay? They're oppressing, they will destroy and enslave Israel, God's people, to know, to any extent possible. They want to destroy, they are the bad guys, and Samson here, he's weakening their defenses and leading towards their eventual freedom from their enemies. But yet, Really? What kind kind of heroic tale is this? Well, in response, the Philistines kill the woman who was supposed to be Samson's wife uh, and her father, just murder them outright as a result, kind of their payment back, and then they go chasing after Samson. And Samson, he knows that they're chasing after him, so he flees back into Israel, uh, particularly into Judah, uh, and the, the Philistines keep following him. But the, even the Israelites at this moment want nothing to do with him. Even his own people, the people that he is supposed to lead, they know the loose cannon that he is, and they say, you know what? We're turning you over to the Philistines. And so they do. They, they bring him right into the hands of their, their very own enemies. They don't even want Samson to save him. Save them Well, that's a mistake as well, not, not a good thing, at least not for the Philistines here, because uh, in 1514, then it says, "And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, Samson, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. A thousand. This is like something out of you know Spartacus or Gladiator or some, you know one of those sort of weird comic books. I mean this is this is a unique sort of moment here when this guy just is enraged with power and strength, and he takes this animal's bone again the dead body thing right, grabs it and uses it a weapon and, and kills a thousand people. And as weird as it may be, okay, bizarre and, and yeah, whatever, uh, there can be no doubting at this moment, right, that, that God, if we are going to believe that this story happened, okay, which I do, it's, I believe that this book is true, if we're going to believe that it happened, there's no doubt that God is somehow using this slime ball to bring about redemption for his people, right? I mean, you, just, you can't miss it. Even Samson here, as he fights against these thousand people, Well, in the next story, we won't go into details here. There's, there's so many stories in the Samson saga. Uh, but in this next story, Samson, our, our lovable hero, uh, gets himself a, a Philistine prostitute. And so if you do end up buying the, the Samson action figure, just warning you, you might want to lock up the Barbies, okay? This guy is, he's he's just kind of crazy, isn't he? And I, and I know I can could, I could see it in some of your eyes at this point, okay? We've been talking through, we've just kind of gone through these, these three chapters of this, this guy's life, and we're all sort of asking ourselves, what is the point? I mean, what is actually going on here? What, is, what can we learn? What can we possibly learn from this? Well, certainly, right, as we said, God works in spite of us. The, the second thing I think we see in this, in this story uh, is that grace is really easy to take for granted, I'm struck with that, and I, and I want us to, 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 to grab onto that just for a moment. I mean, Samson's got everything, but he is ruled by self-centered passion. One scholar writes that Samson is like the self-indulgent athlete who is thrilling on the field and appalling off it. He's got every bit of physical strength imaginable with the moral strength and the inner discipline of a dog in heat. I mean, even the Israelites, even his own people, Want nothing to do with him. He's arrogant and self reliant. I mean, really, he's the opposite of Rahab, isn't he? If you hear last week as we talked about Rahab, I don't. I don't think we could look at two more opposite stories of God's work in people's lives. And Rahab had nothing, right? This this prostitute from Jericho. She was nothing. She, in many ways, she was the definition of loser. And yet, God loves. Loser. She turns back to, to Yahweh and she be, enters into to the people of, of God. And yet here, on the other hand, is Samson. He's got everything. He got sex, power, authority. People are afraid of him. He can take and get anything that he could possibly want. He's a winner, isn't he? If ever we've seen one, and he takes every bit of it for granted. All of it is because of God's grace in bringing about the redemption of His people. And yet, for Samson, it is all about him. As I think about that, I think about that in my own life. um, Just reminded by the fact, one thing that we quickly overlook, I think, in our culture in particular, is that our success is not necessarily a sign of God's approval in our life. The success is not necessarily a sign of God's approval. I think for many of us, you know, growing up in this culture, growing up in this nation, we can very quickly assume, well, we're smart, we're educated, we're wealthy, we're attractive, we've got everything possibly going for us. Surely I must have done something right for God to be so kind. And we very quickly begin to think that my success, my achievements, the things in my life are because God must be happy with me. It may may be the case. It may not be the case. And certainly with Samson, it's not the case. He's incredibly successful in everything that he attempts. And yet God is terribly displeased with the way he's living his life. We'll see that more in a moment. Um, How easy it is for us to take advantage of grace. But thank God he works in spite of us. All right, well now comes the most familiar part of the Samson saga. Delilah, good old Delilah. You just gotta love this lady. Um, I mean, there's only one vow, one part of, of Samson's vow that's left, really. And really, honestly, in the entire uh, story of this guy's life, there's really just one, one area in his entire life that he's actually been obedient to God. He's never had a haircut, and he's never shaved. It's real hard, right? obedient, those things. But, that, but that's, that is his token area of obedience to God here in this moment. He's one hairy dude. And if I ever open a barbershop, I probably won't, but just for the record, if I ever did, I think I'm going to name it Delilah's. Uh, because this, this lady, she's just got the touch with this guy. This individual who's never done this, and yet she can accomplish it because Samson loves her. He loves her. Boy, does this guy have a type, right? Another Philistine. It's the third one in his sort of womanizing haunts here. But he loves her. And the Philistines know it. And so in verse 5, we're in in chapter 15 here. I'm sorry, it's chapter 16. Uh, Verse 5, it says, The lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That would have been enough for her to live off of comfortably for the rest of her life. So Delilah said to Samson, you know, batting her eyelashes, her little pouty lips and her, her best sexy voice. She says, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Just hypothetically speaking, of course, right? And so Samson then tells her three lies. Lie number one, if I'm tied up with the strings of a new bow, like a bow and arrow, the strings, you tie me up with that, I become weak as anybody. Um, yeah, so she does. Ties them up with the strings. Uh, the Philistines are, are hiding out back, just waiting for the, for the moment. And Delilah calls out, you know, Samson, the Philistines are upon us. And, and he wakes up and he, he breaks free. And he's just as strong and normal as he's ever been. Delilah's a little bit disappointed. Lie number two. Samson says, well, if you just tie my hands, if you tie me up with new ropes, brand new ropes, they'll, they'll hold me, then I become as weak as anybody else. And then the exact same thing plays out. Philistine's waiting, Delilah calls out, and Samson breaks free. She's disappointed again. She's getting a little bit more impatient with her disappointment. Lie number three, Samson says, you know what? Here's what it is. I promise this time, this is what it is. If you just weave my hair together, It's getting closer, right, to the source of of kind of this this weird strength that he has. You weave it together, uh, then I become as weak as any any other man. So she does, and the Philistines are waiting. She calls out, and Samson breaks free as normal, just as strong as ever. By now, Delilah's just ticked, okay? Uh, She's getting more than a little bit impatient. And so she begins to beg him day after day after day, and finally Samson gives in to her nagging And he says, essentially, I'm a Nazarite. Don't cut my hair. And here's the strange turning point in the story. Because Samson is no dummy. Because I don't don't think he is. I mean, if, if we were to read some of the other details in those other stories, he is shown to be an individual of an incredible amount of cunning. And she's already done the other things three times, right? I mean, how stupid would you have to be to not know, well, if I tell her, she's gonna actually do it because she's done it three times. I mean, I'm convinced that he knows that she's gonna cut his hair. She's gonna chop it right off. But you know what? Why does he tell her? I think it's because he just doesn't care. I don't even think Samson believes that God is the source of his strength. Or if he does believe, I don't think he thinks that God will ever leave him because he's that privileged guy who's been so strong all throughout, who has that birth story to, to back it up. I don't think he even believes. I mean, he knows that that's the last of his vows to be broken. I mean, that's, that's true, and that, there is some tie there. But he's broken all the other ones, and nothing bad has ever happened to him yet. In fact, it seemed almost as if he got stronger when he broke the vow, right? The donkey bone and you know, swinging that as a sword. I mean, nothing bad has happened He thinks he's invincible even on his own and he's convinced, even if God is the source of his strength, that God's just going to hang around forever. He's got God in his little tiny pocket who's going to always be there, always ready to fight his battles no matter what. Samson just thinks he's that awesome. So the cutting of his hair, it's just a risk he's willing to take for a little you-know with Delilah. That's why I think he's so surprised when his strength is gone. In verse 20, it's almost like you can't even hardly believe it. Verse 20, it says, this is after the haircut. Uh, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Delilah calls out again. And he awoke from his sleep. Okay, just for a second there. He woke from his sleep. He just had his, the first shave and haircut of his entire life. Um, I would think he would notice. I mean, maybe not. It doesn't say. But I would think he would have noticed that in that moment. He woke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill and the prison. Defeated. The slave. The anti-hero. God works in spite of us, but even, even God has a breaking point. God can only stand so much sin, so much arrogance, so much self-reliance. There comes a point in our rebellion against God in which God says, you know what, fine. If you want nothing to do with me, then I will give you what you want. God is so patient, but his patient will not last forever. When we persist unrepentant in our sins, it reveals a heart that is faithless and dead that wants nothing to do with God, and God is so gracious that he won't stay where he's not wanted. And if you were to guess in, in your life or in mine, um, you know, what would be that one thing? That one temptation or potential idol, whatever it is, that one thing that could cause you to sort of kick God off the edge of the cliff in your life. Saying, you know what, no, No more. That one thing that would say cause you to say in in your own sort of rebellion, you know what? Just to hell with God. God works in spite of us. Gracious, eager to take us back, eager to show us His love. But even He has a breaking point. We're at the end of the story. There's a little bit of hope left, only like this much. I mean, if you're hoping for a happy ending, even the ending that comes, I mean, I don't, I don't. It's, it's just so bleak. It's so dark. But there's a little bit of hope left. So the blind, enslaved, laughingstock, little more than a party favor imprisoned and defeated the the anti-hero uh there's a, a party going on all the the lords of the philistines are gathered at one of the temples to their gods so this god dagon and there they are i mean they have this huge massive party and it says that they are they're making merry okay this they they knew how to party okay these philistines and at one moment, they, you know, I don't know if it's in sort of their drunken revelry or, or whatever sort of debauchery that they're enjoying, but they, they say to one another, you know what, we, we ought to bring our trophy in here. I mean, here we are, we're worshiping our, our God and, and our God has protected us from our enemy, Samson. Let's bring the trophy in here. And so they do. They parade him in, blind and defeated. And they, they tell him, they make him entertain them. Whatever that means. What kind of entertainment would this poor, formerly strong man do? I mean, a man so proud as that, now the object of so much ridicule. I mean, it's hard to even imagine a fall this great in a person's life. And, and so there, there are 3,000 people there, all the, the lords of the Philistines, and, and Samson rested against two pillars, the two pillars that, that held up the roof. Um, Now, that that particular temple has long been buried under the modern city of Gaza. Uh, But there's a picture of a a similar temple, um, also built by the Philistines, also from the same time period, not too far. I mean, similar region to this one. This isn't the temple that is in the story, uh, but it's similar. And I just show this to to show, I mean, the architecture is rather remarkable. That's the center of of the temple. And there were these two pillars holding up the roof of this medium-sized temple, this place of worship. In fact, if you were to measure across there, there's just enough length really for a tall person to be able to, to get a good stretch in on both sides. And so Samson stands now blind and defeated uh, next to s- very similar pillars. And Here's what it says It says, Then Samson called to the Lord. It's a nice change. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. I mean, even at his end, he's still more concerned with revenge than justice, more concerned with his own ego than with the people that God had called him to lead. But it's enough. Even that tiniest... The smallest bit of faith is enough. And so Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Really, what that, the author's saying with that last verse is that the best thing Samson ever did was die. That's his greatest accomplishment. It's what he's remembered for. His highest achievement was simply that he, God gave him enough strength to pull down a house upon him and kill more people then than he had before. It's a great legacy, isn't it? But he moves Israel one step closer to freedom from their enemies. And really, that's, that's as much faith as we see in this anti-hero. That's it. It's as good as it gets with Samson. And yet, what is so amazing to me is that it is enough for him to be included in Hebrews 11. He's there. Hebrews 11, that's the, the list in the New Testament of, of all God's faithful people, or at least some of the highlights along the way. Uh, The cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It's the only other place the name Samson appears in the entire Bible outside of these four chapters. Nowhere else is he even whispered about except by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. In his final hour, this anti-hero makes the cut. Which points us, I think, to the final lesson from the story. God works in spite of us and sometimes, sometimes humiliation can save your life. I think about that with this story. If Samson had never been humiliated, would he have ever cried out to God? I don't know. I guess it's possible, but given his track record, I certainly doubt it. And yet God humiliates him in order to rescue him, even in his death. God allows his terrible fall so that Samson could see how desperate he was, and in his humiliation, he turns to God with even the tiniest gesture of faith And God shows him grace once more. Even Samson the slime bag, the winner who became the loser, even he experiences the grace and forgiveness of God through his meager faith. Rarely do we ever think of humiliation as a good thing, right? In fact, we just cringe at the very idea. When's the last time you prayed and asked God to humiliate you? God, before it's too late, would you humiliate me? God, would you be so gracious to me? Before it's too late, if my self-reliance or my self-righteousness, my pride or my insecurity, God, if they are beginning to get the best of me, would you just humiliate me? Yeah, we don't, we don't pray that, do we? Maybe if you're in danger of thinking that your success is all yours, maybe you would be worth, worth praying, God, if that's, if that's true, would you let me get laid off? or if you think that, that your, your beauty or your, your physical appearance is, is you know, kind of the high point of your existence, maybe pray, ask God that you wouldn't, you wouldn't age very gracefully. If there's some hidden sin in your life, something dark and ugly, pray that your wife would catch you. I mean, better to be repentant and humiliated than proud and in hell, right? It's amazing, isn't it? God works in spite of us. And yeah, this story's weird. It's ugly. And yet God uses Samson to begin the process of ensuring freedom for the Israelites, for his people. And he will use you and he will use me to further his plan in our world, even in spite of us. I mean, really, I think in this passage, there is great warning and great encouragement. I mean, hopefully we're all warned by the story of Samson of, of how terrible um, grace can, can be abused in our lives. But I hope we're also encouraged that God can use you, no matter who you are, no matter what you bring to the table or what you think you bring, God can use you, even in spite of you. But really, I, I can't help but think, I mean, here it is, Palm Sunday, right? We're talking about this, this arrogant, self-absorbed leader. I'm struck with how desperate we are for someone better. And I'm struck with how different Jesus is from Samson. I mean, Samson is full of himself, but Jesus emptied himself. Samson had everything going for him. Jesus, I mean, really, he, he gave up everything. Uh, Samson is, is merely a warrior. I'm sure Jesus will, he'll come again as, as a warrior, and he'll mete out judgment on the wicked, but he comes first as a servant, humbly even on a donkey on Palm Sunday, knowing that he was going to die. And, and Jesus um, comes, not, not strutting his own strength like Samson, but willing to wash his disciples' feet. Samson Samson dies to get revenge on his enemies. But Jesus dies to bring redemption for his enemies. As we study this book, cover to cover this year, we are in search of a leader, in search of a king, in search of a savior. We are going to, to look behind every corner, searching for it, just as the people of Israel did, But Samson's not the one we're waiting for. Thank God, right? But one day our king will come. And in the meantime, we take hope, believing that our God works even in spite of us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for a story like Samson's. Even though it's weird, it's difficult, it's just makes us feel uncomfortable to say the least. Um, and yet, God, I thank you for the warning that it is to my life of how easy it is to take your favor, your grace for granted. Um, and yet, God, also I'm encouraged by it because I see that you are still faithful. That even with Samson, even his still selfish turn towards you, even that, God, you still respond with favor to him and that you still use him. God, I pray that you'd use us as well. For the glory of your son, we pray, amen.